Welcome back to Paranormal. This is our second episode, and episode two, I think, will be an interesting one to anyone who owns a pet or has owned a pet, or I guess knows somebody who has a pet, whether they're annoyed with that pet or not. But uh, this is one of those topics that if you are a pet owner or animal lover, you have no doubt talked about or thought about. And that is the whole subject of, you know, quote unquote, psychic animals, and specifically uh, this notion about whether animals can sense at a distance if their owners are on their way home, you know, from, again, some distant location uh, coming and going in the normal routine. So with me are Trey, uh, Trey Strickland and Natalino once again. Uh, we're, we're back. It's just the three of us again. Uh, so we haven't had uh, our co-host. Maybe I could take a shot at them that they're not brave enough yet to, uh, <laughs> to 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 take on a topic like this, or either that or they don't have pets. You know, who knows? <laughs> but uh, it's it's the three of us again, and I want to focus on one particular article. I, between us, you know, we shared a few links uh, to different readings, but the one I want to focus on was published in 2000, Journal of Scientific Exploration. And it was co-authored by Rupert Sheldrake, which is a familiar name in consciousness studies or quote-unquote paranormal studies. And his co-author is Pamela Smart. And the title of the article was A Dog That Seems to Know When His Owner is Coming Home. The subtitle is Videotaped Experiments and Observations. So you can already tell that uh, they spent a considerable amount of time videotaping the behavior of in this case, one particular dog. Now, I'm going to read a bit from the abstract and a few other places in the article so that listeners kind of know what uh, the experimenters were trying to do, how they set things up, what their goals were, and then a little bit about uh, the things they observed, You know, maybe uh, briefly uh, a conclusion or two, but I want to hold off a little bit on that. Uh, because I want to open the discussion first. There, I will tip my hand here. There, there's something in this article that kind of bothers me as far as the, I guess I'll use this word, the validity of the idea. Even though I, I'm a pet owner, we, we're, we're dog lovers. I've, I've probably had a couple dozen dogs, and I've, I've seen this kind of behavior over and over and over again. But there's just something in this article that strikes me as a bit odd. But we'll get to that as we, we proceed. So. The abstract here says in part, many dog owners claim that their animals know when a member of the household is about to come home, showing their anticipation by waiting at a door or a window. We have investigated such a dog, the dog's name is JT, in more than 100 videotaped experiments. His owner is one of the co-authors, Pamela Smart traveled at least seven kilometers away from home while the place where the dog usually waited for her was filmed continuously. The time-coded videotapes were scored blind. So this is a blind experiment. Uh, In experiments in which Pamela Smart returned at randomly selected times, JT was at the window 4% of the time during the main period of her absence and 55% of the time when she was on her way home. Again, that gives you a little bit of a flavor for uh, 
you know, at least the, the bulk of the experiment. Now, they changed it up a little bit because they did some different things. They put JT in different locations, you know, not uh, the, the dog's normal home. Uh, and they had the owner, Pamela Smart in this case, vary the way she would uh, come home, vary the time, you know, whether she stopped anywhere or didn't, you know, that sort of thing. So the article itself uh, kind of, introduces the subject by saying, hey, you know, this gets talked about a lot and there have been you know, sort of random surveys that they've conducted. One of our other links was actually one of these surveys where people have shared, you know, kind of their their common experiences. And they write, the authors write, dog owners often ascribe their animals' anticipations to telepathy or a sixth sense, but the authors are quick to to add there could be more conventional explanations. So they're trying to weed out some of the conventional explanations, things like, well, maybe the dog is responding to some cue that someone else in the house does that makes them go to the window or to the door. Okay, or maybe there's something outside the door. Maybe they can see something through a window in the house. Uh, maybe even something that occurs at regular intervals. And that is what attracts the dog you know, to the, to the door or the window, or whatever. So the article it goes through a number of possibilities as to what might be cueing the dog, if anything. And then they would, they did certain things to sort of minimize those possibilities. And again, they they were trying to to construct random behavior, both on in terms of the person coming home, and again the setting where the dog was, and whether the dog was alone or with someone else in the house at all. So they did a number of these things to try to, again, weed out things that might be possible explanations. For instance, uh, with respect to the to the author, I want to read a little bit, uh, a little line here uh, about the author. She worked routine office hours, and so her family assumed that JT's behavior depended on some kind of time sense, but. The author, the co-author, was actually laid off from her job in 1993 and was subsequently unemployed. So she was away from home for hours at a time and was no longer tied to a regular pattern of activity. So that the dog, and she was living with her parents, did not know when her schedule would be. So that becomes a factor in the article. So there's a, there's a randomness that actually happened to the author that they could kind of build into the study. Now, the co-author, Pamela Smart, again, it's her dog. She, would, she kept notes on what she was doing, uh, how far she traveled, what kind of transportation she took. Was it a car? Which car? You know, did she walk at all? Like maybe she went to the store, that kind of thing, again, which would vary with speed and distance and all this sort of thing. So they, they kept pretty meticulous records of this. And the author's conclude again this is just the basics of the of the conclusion it didn't seem to matter how far away uh, Pamela Smart was or what mode of transportation she was taking again so that it varied the time uh, the, the the travel you know schedule they they tried to take away the the predictability of the travel schedule so again that kind of gives you a, a little bit of a an idea 100 videotapes they actually conducted a series of 12 experiments with randomly chosen return times. Uh, again, sometimes those, those return times were uh, prompted 
by something. They were scheduled. Other times they were completely random. Uh, they write, we made these observations, again, to find out about the natural history of the dog's anticipatory behavior, again, just under random circumstances. Uh, and again, they, they, I think they, they really put forth a good effort here to try to take away, again, the things that you might say, okay, this is the reason for it. She's in a schedule. The dog just memorizes the schedule or is conditioned to the schedule. But in her case, she goes shopping, she visits friends, she, you know, she, she go, goes to work, she attends meetings. It's random. The distances were between 7 and 22 kilometers uh, during the course of the experiment. There was nothing predictable about it is the point. Now, in terms of – let me just scroll here to, uh, again, some of their analysis and some of their, their conclusions here that are kind of interesting – Experiments with randomly selected return times. I'll just read a little bit here. The overall results show that JT was at the window far more when Pamela Smart was on her way home than during the main period of her absence. Let me repeat that. The dog was at the window more when she was on her way home than during the main period of absence. So there there seemed to be, again, some correlation between when she decided to go home and the dog's increased presence, again, at the window or the door, whatever the case you know, might be. He was at the window for an average of 55% of the time during the first 10 minutes of the return journey because they kept, again, they, they, they were, were very meticulous. They kept uh, time records of how long it took. So the dog's at, at the window an average of 55% of the time during the first 10 minutes of the return journey as opposed to 4% of the time during the main period of the person's absence. So four to 55% is a pretty, those are pretty significant numbers. On average, JT was at the window for the highest proportion of the time, 65% in the return period when Pamela Smart was actually on her way home. A number of interesting details are hidden by this averaging process, they note. On five occasions, all in the evening, the dog did not go to the window at all during the first 10 minutes of her homeward journey. And so they're noting exceptions as well. But in terms of percentage, there's a very high percentage of the dog's behavior being, again, expectant, you know, waiting for his, his owner to come home, as opposed to when the owner was actually occupied doing something other than returning home. So I think that's a fair... Uh, summary. I don't want to really say too much more than that because they're they're going to mix it up when uh, they do some other things with the dog. And in particular, I'll just I'll say this one thing that I want to know what what you guys think. But in particular, when they put the dog at Pamela Smart's sister's house, there was a change in behavior, and we'll we'll get to that uh, a, a bit later. So let, let's just jump in by saying, hey, have, have we experienced? Have you guys experienced this in your own life with your own pets? And what did you think about uh, the article? And what what do you think about the experiment and its results? Well, you know, I had I had mentioned this in the last episode because it's something I find really interesting. I think that all of us have read articles about you know, a cat getting lost during a move and then somehow finding their owner, you know, 300 miles away or, or whatever the case is. So it, it makes you wonder what's happening there. In my own experience, 
I have to say, I've only really been a cat owner. <laughs> um, but there are certain things that that have struck. I, I, I can't quite explain. For example, if I normally wake up at a specific time every day, but mm-hmm. one day I have to get up two hours earlier for some reason, and somehow he will kind of know at that particular time to come you know, and start trying to wake me up, even though that's not my routine. And that I can't quite explain. So, um, so he will actually, he will actually do something to wake you up as opposed to responding to some cue. Yes. You know, like, you know, like an alarm or maybe, you know, you're one of these people who just sort of wakes up. I mean, I, I've, <laughs> I've met people like that. I think they're just kind of odd. Yes. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> I but, can just but the cat actually because, is yeah. doing something. Yeah, you know, my cat generally tries to wake me up slightly before an alarm goes off. He, But, you know, that could be explained by routine if I generally get up at the same time every day. But on the occasions where I have to set my alarm for a different time, he will somehow still start trying to wake me up right before that alarm goes off, even though it's an entirely different, unfamiliar time. Um, so I've always been really fascinated by that. I, it perhaps can be explained away by some sort of subconscious anticipation, uh, anticipation that I personally have that I have to get up at a different time. So I'm agitated or something like that. You know, it could be any of those things, but it is interesting. And, and I've always been interested in these stories of animals somehow finding their owners across vast differences, uh, distances. So this well, is you- really interesting. Yeah, to me, I mean, they are different topics, but I think they are related. Mm-hmm. Well, I should say it this way: they, they they conceptually could be related. Yeah, because if I mean the 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 authors of the article are are really asking the question: is there is there some telepathic explanation for this? In yes. other words, they're they're looking for evidence that would 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 provide a non-material, an immaterial cognitive or consciousness explanation, some connection between the animal and the owner. And and so, you know, the immediate topic is, you know, hey, do they know that we're coming home? But if that's the case, then you could see how it could operate in the other example as well. I mean, if you're, you know, a thousand miles away and you're thinking about your cat, well, if, again, if, if, if consciousness if they're sort of included in this stream of consciousness, this non-material reality, which doesn't have anything to do with distance. Again, here we go into the, the Einsteinian you know, physics of it all. If, if distance is not an issue, well, then that connection is still there, even though the cat would have to travel geographically you know, to find whatever that signal is, you know, whatever that, that touch point is. So conceptually, uh, I, I, I've, I would think as well that if there's something to this, then there would be some relationship to that. You know, I, I've read some of those things too. You know, and again, when, when they happen, they, they tend to be fairly spectacular. So they typically make the news. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and some people have wondered, well, is there something going on and, you know, with the Earth's mag- magnetic feel like homing pigeons or something have this part of the brain or whatever it is, this, you know, that, that allows them to track the Earth's magnetic field. And, you know, maybe we'll do that topic, you know, sometime later because I've come across, again, experiments, you know, in journals on that too. Yeah. Uh, wondering, is there, 
are, are animals just sort of more connected to the Earth's magnetic field in some way yes. that allows them to, to track things like this? Could because I you, can, on you that can't for say a it's visual. Sure, yeah. go ahead. It, there, there, I just want to mention it because it actually it, there is a little section that talks about that specifically in one of these uh, links that you had us read. Um, this one would have been um, uh, the one that said it's, uh, Dean Radin for the Journal of Scientific Exploration. Oh yeah, yeah. And there is a section in there that specifically talks about um, a planetary geomagnetic field and whether or not that could have something to do with it. Now, I will tell you that you know I have such a I have such a supernatural perspective on on life, and so I don't have trouble with psi and that type of thing. And so I kind of came into this thinking, yeah, animals probably are psychic, <laughs> you know. I mean, I don't I don't really have too many issues with those kinds of things, but as I read through this and I got to the section talking about the geomagnetic field possibility, that is the spot where I started kind of moving away from the idea that it was sort of maybe some sort of telepathic thing and more that it did perhaps have just a more conventional explanation that animals can perceive something in the geomagnetic field that we cannot. And this section here is just called Psi and the Planetary Geomagnetic Field. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, and I didn't get a chance to send you this because I just happened upon it today. But uh, somebody sent me a link to a research that was being done at the Max Planck Institute Mm -hmm. um, about how animals... There's a molecule in the eyes of like birds, bats, that type of thing that helps them perceive where directional things and migration issues and stuff like that. But in this particular study, which is actually published in the Nature Scientific Report, they have found that there are similar molecules, which they're calling cryptochrome one Mm -hmm. in the retinas of eyes of even mammals like dogs Mm -hmm. and Hmm. that. Perhaps, and and the theory is that this molecule, cryptochrome one, has gives them the ability to see things in the magnetic field, perceive them that human beings just don't have. Mm -hmm. And all of this kind of started coming together for me. And now I'm really kind of moving away from the psi explanation and more into this makes more sense. You, You know, you hear reports of animals who can perhaps predict an earthquake or a storm coming, these mm-hmm. kinds of things, it, it's kind of all starting to come together. So what if animals, what if it has less to do with the vehicle or the sound or the, uh, you know, the routine and more to do with an animal being able to tap into perhaps a frequency that a specific person gives off in the geomagnetic field and they can kind of almost like hone in on your specific frequency and sort of always be able to perceive where you are that started to really fascinate me thinking about that yeah yeah what if, what if you know again you use the word frequency what if what if people have a unique frequency in the animal it gets acclimated to this yes well i have because a funny story of proximity about that. Yeah, Go ahead. I, I agree with that and that's the camp that i live in that it's something to do because you because you, you always hear about the storms and i read where ladybugs will actually gather when it's dry to save their moisture and so, so you could predict when it's going to be really hot weather and other animals do certain things when before it rains and earthquakes and you've gave gave some other examples so i do think there's a frequency of something that they tap into and i don't think it's uh 
telepathy or anything like that. But when I was a child, probably three to five years old, I would go out with my granddad and feed the cattle. And what's funny is all of the cows would come to me to the point where it scared me. And I would lock my granddad out of the truck sometimes. And even he was perplexed because I would get out of the truck and the cows would literally walk up to me and surround me as a little child. You're the, you're the cow whisperer. I, 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 yeah, but they were, you know, it, it scared me because these big cows are coming at me and I'm three or five. I'm little, right? And even at the truck, I would be in the truck and they would surround the truck and try to stick their heads in where I'm at. And I, and I, I wasn't doing anything. I didn't have any hay or food or anything special. They were just attracted to me, my frequency or something. I don't know, but it's, I find it, you know, fascinating. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that's interesting. Now for, for listeners, what uh, the article Natalina is referencing again, one of these other ones is by Dean Radin. The title was a dog that seems to know when his owner is coming home effect of environmental variables. And in this article, it, it is kind of interesting. He, I'll just read like one little, or a couple sentences here. Raiden writes, uh, a growing bioelectromagnetics literature continues to suggest that exquisitely small variations in electromagnetic flux are associated with cellular and behavioral changes in a very wide range of living organisms. And then he cites three different peer-reviewed studies on that. And Commenting on the dog, he says, in the present case, although the underlying mechanisms are uncertain, it is clear that JT, remember that's the dog, JT's performance suffered on days when the Earth experienced higher global geomagnetic flux. Now, what, what he did in this, in his own study, is he took the, the uh, records of the experiment with the dog. Again, they had everything plotted out, time intervals, dates amounts of time between this and that. And then he went and looked at uh, data for, you know, geomagnetic events or, you know, data related to the, to the Earth's geomagnetic field for those days, for those times specifically. And so that that's the basis on which he is saying this. He says, for example, if we simply separated the 45 experiments into the five most and five least geomagnetically active days, we find that JT's average performance was significantly higher or better on the calm days as opposed to the geomagnetically stormy days. So again, Raiden's article is like, well, kind of like what what Natalina and and Trey, what you guys have just been saying. There there seems to be something to this. Again, the... uh, the geomagnetic, you know, physical, the, the non-PSI uh, kind of explanation for this. And I, I have to admit, too, I, I'm in this camp, too, all, not only because I think that, again, based on, on you know, the research of some of these other people, that that seems to be a reasonable, po- reasonable possibility, but also because of this, again, this, this part of, of the experiment with the, with the dog uh, at the other person's house, which we'll get to in a in a moment. But I, you know, just since we're sharing anecdotes, I mean, I, like I said, we, we've had lots of dogs, and, and you know, we've seen this over and over again. With we have two dogs now. We have a retriever and a, and the pug. Now the pug, and I'm not trying to pick on the pug because the pug's awesome, but the pug never shows any interest at all in anything. <laughs> <laughs> if he's on your lap, the, the place. 
there could be, you know, I don't know, uh, the, the, the whole, the, the front yard could be on fire and the pug is just going to snooze through it. Okay. He doesn't do anything when anyone comes home, but the retriever consistently does. So I don't know if that's if I can't say that the retriever is smarter than the pug because it's not really based on you know innate intelligence, but but if there is this geomagnetic thing going on, either the retriever has more of it than the pug does, or the pug just ignores it. I mean, who who knows you know what what that is? Now the retriever has been with us longer, several years longer. The pug you know is about one and a half. Okay, uh, he's 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 into his second year that we've had him. So. Four, four or five times longer, you know, for the retriever. Maybe that's a factor. I don't know, but their behavior is quite different, and it, it's equally consistent, you know, on, on polar opposites uh, of you know what you might expect, you know, when somebody comes home and and I'm sitting there on the couch and I'm absorbed in something, and I will just know that the the, the retriever will give me cues. Okay, mom's on her way home. I mean, I. I I just know that she's going to show up in the next 10 minutes, you know, but, but with the, the other dog, the little one, there's just nothing like that. So I, I don't know what to make of that, but yeah, I've seen this kind of thing too. What do you think about, uh, any of the other, let, let me ask this. Are, were you satisfied with the study? I mean, I, I, I personally was that I, I thought they really, I was kind of impressed at some of the measures they took to weed out, uh, certain possibilities, but the 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 study we started with didn't. They weren't thinking about the geomagnetic thing at all. They're they're wondering is there something telepathic going on here? But just generally, do you think you think there was anything amiss with the study? Um, do you think they did a good job? Uh, can you can you tell yet what what troubles me about <laughs> about the behavior of the dog? <laughs> Again, well, having, having something to do with the sister's house. It just go ahead. You know, I I think that the study was handled pretty well. I was impressed that they tried, you know, different vehicles, walking, bicycle, different distances, different times. You know, I mean, it seems like they did a really good job of eliminating the um, the the sort of prevailing thought that it must just be a perceiving routine. You know, mm-hmm. um, I thought they did really impressive work with that. It eliminated a lot of the questions that I might've had or the skepticism that I might've had with that. Um, but I am, I'm on pins and needles to know (laughs) 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 the the problem that you had. I do know that there was a a section and I can't remember which, uh, article it was in, but there was a section where it referenced how another, um, research group had published, in the guardian or something like that based on these particular findings, but coming to a completely different conclusion stating that it was all evidence that there was no psychic or, or uh, telepathic evidence presented. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think, I think Raiden actually did a, a, a decent job of, of addressing some of the, I mean, he doesn't land, in the in the PSI category, he he basically says it's it's indeterminate, but then he he offers this geomagnetic thing. But you know, I I think he does a, a fair job of showing how those criticisms in that other piece are a bit unwarranted. In other words, it, I, I got the feel reading his his criticism of their criticisms that 
they were just sort of angling to dismiss the whole thing. And, and Raiden doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, you know, he's not in the, in the PSI category on this one, at least. Um, so I, that, that's not really what, what's troubling me. Here, let, let, let me just read a few sections about when they left the dog on his own at the sister's house. Okay. So let's see here. I'll just jump in here to a few things that I have marked. Okay, Pamela Smart sometimes left JT at her sister's house. And here, too, he usually went to the window when she was coming home. Okay, so it sounds so you know good so far. But well, I should just continue with that paragraph. Pamela Smart did not tell her sister when she would be returning, but her sister usually knew when she was on her way because of JT's behavior. So the person is kind of reading the dog like I just alluded to with, with our retriever. In this house, in order to look out of the window, JT had to balance himself on the back of a sofa. Unlike the situation in Pamela Smart's parents' flat, again, where, where she lived and in her own flat, JT could not wait by the window comfortably and rarely stayed for long. Nevertheless, in a series of five videotaped experiments, his general pattern of response was similar to that in Pamela Smart's place, okay? Although the percentage of time spent at the window was lower. We carried out a pre-planned series of 50 videotaped experiments in which JT was left by himself, okay, left by himself in Pamela Smart's own flat, her own apartment, while she went out. When they analyzed the data, here's, here's what those 50 resulted in. A closer analysis of the data revealed that JT showed two different patterns of response. In most of the tests, 35 out of 50, JT did not go to the window when Pamela was on her way home. So when, when the dog's by himself, his behavior of going to the window was, was dramatically reduced. Mm. which again was kind of like, well, why, why would that be? I mean, that, that just, and they offer again, some, you know, proposed explanations for this. They says, they, they say, uh, he made few or no visits uh, to the window during the entire time she was absent on an X number of occasions. One reason may be that the view from the window was largely obscured by a bush. Well, look, you don't need to have the visual. If, if she's seven kilometers away when she leaves, he's not going to see her anyway. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of a, a lame excuse for that. And then they write, by contrast, in 15 out of 50 experiments, 30% JT behaved much as he did at Pamela Smart's parents' place. So in the minority of occasions, he he does the you know quote uh, telepathic behavior, but in, in over fifty percent he didn't. You know when they they change things up a little bit. Now going down a little bit, they try to they they talk about okay how do we explain this variance? Okay, so they go through okay you know here's what might be affecting this routine you know which we've talked about already maybe hearing a familiar vehicle. Okay, their hearing's more sensitive than that. But again, she didn't always use a vehicle. So they're they're going through these different options. And one of them was this, picking up clues from people at home. Now that stuck out to me because when they left the dog alone, the behavior changed quite a bit. So maybe maybe a person doesn't know, uh, you know, that they're doing something to cue the dog in some way. 
But then that raises the question, well, why would, why would a person routinely do this in conjunction with the specific, you know, time interval? Again, it, it, it's really, it's just kind of odd. JT going to the window more and more the longer his owner was absent. You know, they ruled that out too. Like, oh, he just misses her. So they're ruling everything out. But then there's just this one thing that that when we leave this dog alone, over half the time he doesn't do anything. (laughs) Again, when when he's at the sister's house. So that that struck me as, as really odd. And, you know, I thought, well, why would there be any difference if, if this is a, again, a non-local telepathic, you know, whatever, uh, if this is the explanation for this, you know, why would there be a variance? Now what, what they didn't say, and I don't recall Raiden saying it, but those instances where you get this difference in behavior, again, did Raiden try to tie that in with the, the geomagnetic field? In other words, was there a correlation between when they put him in that location and left him alone and, and the days of high geomagnetic activity, that sort of thing? You know, who knows? But it, it, to me, it, it feels a little bit anomalous. Uh, last thing I'll, I'll say here, they ask, why did JT sometimes not react at all uh, to Pamela Smart's returns? In all our experiments with JT, on some occasions, he did not show his usual anticipatory behavior. Again, to, to me, even if, he, even if he, he didn't do it once or twice, you'd want to know why. Because, again, if he has this connection to this person and he, he does it over and over and over again, why doesn't he on you know, these two or three or whatever it is, um, that, that just sort of stuck out at me, that he didn't do anything. So they say, in, in all our experiments, you know, there are some occasions he didn't do anything. In our preliminary series of 100 observations, he failed to do anything at all on 15 occasions. On some of these occasions, he was tired after long walks, so they're giving him a pass. On some, he was sick, giving him another pass. On others, he was distracted by, you know, a bitch in heat. Okay, the dog next door, the female dog next door. So they're, they're, they're giving him these passes all over the place. But in a few cases, there was no obvious reason for his failure to react. When JT was left in Pamela Smart's flat on his own, his lack of anticipatory behavior was usual rather than than exceptional. On most occasions, he did not wait for her at the window or indeed visit the window at all. So here's what they say. This, This bugged me. He seemed capable of anticipating Pamela's return when he was on his own, but he just didn't bother. Well, how do you know? I mean, that's, that's psychologizing the dog. Yeah. And, and that just really struck me as kind of lame. So I, I think that what the experiment did for me was in, in my head as I read through this, and again, you know, I think you know, you're, it's good that you brought Raiden into the discussion. There is something going on here, but this PSI connection, if that were the case – I don't see how this answer, oh, he just didn't feel like it. Oh, he was tired. You know, oh, this. So oh, I, I don't see those as adequate explanations for when the pattern is broken. So that's what bugs me. Mm. That, that's thought-provoking because, you know, I can, I can see how somebody in the home would even just be consciously aware of, like, don't, don't say anything, don't get up and look out the window, you know, don't give the dog any cues. But without realizing it, maybe as the time approaches, they're looking at the window themselves more or they're watching the dog more and the dog picks up on that. You know, there's subtle things that they're doing that the dog is aware of that maybe the human 
isn't. I think that's really interesting because I can see, you know, like if you're, if you're anticipating something about to happen, if someone's going to come to your house, you might find yourself looking at the clock or looking at the window, Mm -hmm. even if it's just shifting your eyes, you know, more frequently. And maybe the dog did pick up on that and thought, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll go look out the window. That's interesting. Yeah. And even if they looked at the dog, oh, is the dog doing anything? You know, just a, a cue like that. And I'll, I'll grant, look, if, if it's geomagnetic, okay, maybe the dog can can sit there and think, okay, the, the geomagnetic thing is going off in my head. Mom's on her way home again, but I'm just, I'm, I don't feel like going to the window. You know, I mean, yeah, maybe the dog can make decisions like that. Okay, so just for the sake of, of argument, you know, I, I'll I'll have to, I'll have to allow that my criticism of you know my my calling that a lame explanation could apply as well to the geomagnetic thing, but but. It just, they're just, I just think there are other things as careful as they could be to eliminate things, even the absence of, of something that they would normally do. Oh, you know, hey, we're, we're in the, we're in the trials now when we know when Pamela is coming home. So maybe they do look at the, at the clock on the wall. Maybe they stop talking, you know, yeah. at those times. So there's an absence of activity. Who knows? Who knows what the dog could possibly picking up on? I, I, I do think they really, they really made a, a serious effort to not cue the dog uh, in any way. But I, I, I don't think that they could say conclusively that we didn't do it, you know, subconsciously or unconsciously or, or whatever. And so I, that, that has, again, like, like you were saying, that has sort of shifted me over to the, maybe there's, again, some, some, earthly explanation, you know, that, that there's this geomagnetic thing or something like that uh, yeah. might be better. And so they said about 30% of the time he displayed some telepathic tendencies, right? So what, what's the normal acceptable random percentage that's, that's not random, I guess? Like what, what would he have to, what percentage would he have to show anticipation, you know, what percentage to kind of prove that there is something telepathic going on yeah, in the peer review world. Do you, do, you, do, you re, do you remember, I mean, they, they did a lot of math in the articles. Do you remember what that number was, Natalina? Because I, I, I don't, but I've, I've read articles on other things where when it starts, when it starts breaking about 20, 25% that, I mean, I, again, not with this specific article, so I can't claim that, but, but I have read things where it, when it starts to climb up, toward a quarter or a third that that's a, a little bit more than random but i don't know that that's the case yeah i don't remember here. it in in the article but i remember uh in the research we were doing for our last episode and all of the different papers we were reading about um you know esp and all of that stuff it does seem like right around that 25 percent mark is mm-hmm. where the eyebrow starts to raise yeah that, that's that's the impression i get too now they may say something specifically in the article and you know, I'm, I'm I'm trying to pick articles that that our listeners will be able to find. You know, that have links, so they're they're freely accessible on the web. There, there may be something in the math there that someone who maybe is trained in statistics will jump out at them, or, or again, something that we're just not remembering right now. But just as a general number, I've I've just come across that when it starts to creep up into that territory, it it does start to draw attention. Yeah, and it's interesting because one of the 
this may or may not relate, but one of the um, other articles that we looked at in preparation for this was um, on the Rupert Sheldrake website, the Psychic Pets Survey in Northwest Mm -hmm. England. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just for me personally, I don't put a ton of stock in that because that was literally just calling people who have pets, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and asking them stuff. And it's interesting to note that in those surveys, one of the last questions they asked was unrelated to animals. And they simply said, do you believe that you have psychic abilities, tendencies? And it seemed like the more people who said that they believe they did also applied that to their (laughs) animals, you know? Um, And a, a side note is that I did a word search, a keyword search in that article because being a cat person, I'm like, what's with all of the focus on dogs? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's see what they're saying about cats. And it does seem that most of the cat owners, there's a much lower percentage of people who thought that their cats had these uh, perceptions or ability, abilities. And then they speculate, well, maybe it's because cats are more aloof or, you know, that people don't bond with the cats as much or, you know, um, cats just don't care, <laughs> you know. But I'm going to go back to that article I mentioned way at the beginning. And I sent you guys a link to it about that cryptochrome one mm-hmm. molecule. In that article, it specifically stated that that is not something that you find in cats. It's prim- primarily dogs and wow, birds and, and stuff like that, that, that dog-like mammals, uh, and they include bears and wolves and stuff like that, do find that in their eyes, but cats don't have it and cat-like animals don't have it. So it kind of even made me think more about the geomagnetic thing that maybe just cats don't tap into that thing the way dogs do. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they just don't care. <laughs> it's, po- it's possible that they don't care because it can't possibly be bonding because I've bonded with my cat like to to a disturbing level. So <laughs> 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 he and I have an understanding. <laughs> yeah, well, my I mean, we've had we've had a number of cats, too, you know, and I I know that happens, uh, especially when there's sort of a, a primary a primary owner, a primary person that the cat will either pick you know, or, or, or gravitate toward for whatever reason. So no, I, I know that happens. Yeah. Yeah. So I, well, it sounds to me like we're all kind of in the, 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 the geomagnetic or some sort of non PSI uh, camp here. But the the last thing I want to talk about is, okay, let, you know, if, if there was some other behavior or some other uh, aspect to, uh, and this is going to be a very broad term, animal cognition. Okay. Animal cognition is something I'm, I'm interested in. I, I don't know if any of you have done any reading about uh, animal intelligence. You, you, the, the field typically refers to it as cognition because it's more than just, you know, like being able to acquire a language or something like that. Like with parrots, bird, you know, bird, Alex, the parrot is kind of the sort of the textbook case now. Uh, Coco the gorilla for a while, but there, there's something, there's an intelligence going on uh, there, which we would often associate with, again, using very vague terms here, you know, higher consciousness and, and whatnot, you know, abstract thought. So I don't think personally, I mean, you guys can chime in here. Um, there might be maybe new agers or other religions that would, would look at something like that. 
uh, and say, okay, with certain animals that, that they have this, this consciousness that this has something to do with animals being part of what we would normally associate the, the disembodied you know, immaterial world, the world we associate with spiritual beings or God or humans, you know, uh, that, that sort of thing. I personally, you know, question that. But on the other hand, you know, we do have the, this biblical idea of, of the New Eden. And the New Eden would, would be, an, be an awful strange place without animals. So I don't think we're going to see that. But the question is, will these animals we have connections with, will they be part of that? Will they be brought back? Like, does my dog go to heaven? You know, this kind of question. And so people who are, who are going to want to put animals in the non-material world – you know, are going to be looking at this whole subject uh, differently than those who don't. But would we have a theological problem uh, if, if that was the case? Even though, again, with, with the, for the sake of, of our discussion here, I don't think this article establishes that at all, uh, establishes any you know, PSI, non-material consciousness connection with, with animals. But let's say something else did and you know, it, it was again tied to this you know, higher intelligence consciousness sort of thing. Do we think that there's a theological problem there? Like, does that upturn any apple carts uh, for any of you? Have you come across anything that uh, where maybe someone will use this piece of information to argue for some strange you know, theological idea or say, ah, if this is true, then this other thing can't be true? Have you come across anything like that? Not personally, but I'm sure. There are people out there. I mean, look at Coco, the the ape that learned sign language. I mean, there's an argument there that you could have a conversation with with a gorilla. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so and, and Coco used used the signs in independent, you know, configurations. It wasn't just it wasn't just memorization or visual memory. It, right. it would Coco would use the words For, in ways that he had not been taught. You know, to mm -hmm. to communicate some idea that that he had not been trained in. So, so I think that kind of proves it in somewhat, but has that turned over religion and, and upset a lot of people? I don't think so. Yeah, for me, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all. Even if this, let's just say that this uh, research had proven beyond question that there's some sort of a psychic phenomenon happening between animals and humans. Mm -hmm. I actually don't see how that would affect my Christian or biblical worldview at all, because I happen to believe that these animals, these dogs, these cats that live with us and that are our companions, I think they are gifts to us from God. I think that they help us and they give us, you know, joy and companionship. And how could I possibly say that there would be a problem with the idea that the Lord has given them certain ways of perceiving things that would help them help us? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't have a problem with that. And I think that you can separate it and say that just because they're able to potentially tap into something, um, you know, outside of biology doesn't mess, does not equate them having the same kind of consciousness and uh, spirituality that human beings have. The way that I could see it being uh, misapplied or misused is that, you know, we see so many uh, of these animal rights activists now um, trying to classify animals as like non-human persons, <laughs> you know, so that they could potentially sue a human, that, that they could um, have the same exact rights that human beings have. I could see 
where almost more secularly than religiously that those kinds of things could help push that agenda. But as far as affecting my faith at all or making me question uh, biblical truth, it it has no, no impact whatsoever. Yeah, I think the only people that would really be troubled, again, let's say that somebody somehow, somewhere establishes, you know, this this whole telepathic PSI idea for animals. I think the only people that are, that are going to be upset with that are the people who define the image of God by those things. Mm. You know, because that right away then then that undermines what they think makes humanity unique. And 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 the problem there isn't you know, animal telepathy or animal consciousness there. That the problem is is you got a really bad view of the image of God. <laughs> I mean that, that that's the real problem there. It's not this other thing. Um yeah, I, I don't I don't have a problem with it either. And I'll, I I think we need to be fair because if we if we are not philosophical materialists, okay, if if you know and again again meaning that only those things which are are material are real. Okay, if if we're not going to believe that, and 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 we as Christians we, you know, we we can't believe that, and certainly the Bible doesn't teach that because we have a very clear creator creature distinction and all that sort of stuff. And you know, we have this thing that the spiritual world, and and you can have that discussion. Well, is the spiritual world another dimension? Is that tied some way to materialism as we know it, or you know, who knows? Again, that that's a subject for a you know, a a different episode, which I'm I'm sure we'll get there. But if we're going to say that there is a material reality and a non-material material reality, that you are not just your brain, if we're going to say that, well, that what we're saying there is consciousness is not the same as the material thing that, you know, that we call our brain. So we have a break there. Well, I think we'd also have to say, therefore, that that consciousness is not the same as non- materialism because we do need our brain uh you know they're 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 two related things but they're not the same Uh, the 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 analogy i like and i know we'll we'll come back to this like when we hit near-death experiences and stuff like that is the secular world wants to say you're your brain that the brain produces consciousness well why not have an analogy like a radio okay consciousness is just out there like radio waves are just out there and the radio doesn't produce them but without the radio, you can't detect them. You don't know that they're there. You don't know what they do. You don't. You, you can't hear the music. Uh, so we you know we need our brains to you know have us you know I, I guess participate or, or or understand or know or experience um, you know this this thing we call consciousness. But that isn't what produces it. It's a necessary thing, but it's not sufficient to explain the whole phenomenon. Well, if if you have that break as well. You can have, you know, animal consciousness even at a high level. Uh, you you could even have animal, you know, uh, you know, this consciousness being part of this non-material world. It doesn't mean that you violated any sort of barrier, you know, that that is unique only to God or humans or something like that. But uh, so I'm, I, I think again, we're all in the same camp here. I, I'm not troubled by it at all. I, I think it's intriguing, uh, but. Based on what we've we've read to this point, I don't think this does it. Uh, but I'm I'm willing to have somebody produce something at some point that puts me in that camp. I'm I'm willing to go there, but but you got to show me something that's a little more conclusive than this. Agreed. And that, and that goes for people too. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you're gonna have to show me something, you know, on person to person. Yeah, I mean, I look at my. 
you know, I look at my dog and think, okay, there, there's consciousness going there. Mm-hmm. There's, there's something going on there. There's interaction that isn't verbal. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's not just the, the dog looking at you visually and waiting to respond to something. There, there's, there's a little bit more going on you know, there. And people have established this by tests and, and all sorts of things. Um, you know, if, if, if an animal can learn a behavior that requires a certain amount of mental faculties, you know, a certain amount of cognition to do that. I, I love the experiments, by the way, that compare chickens to toddlers. Uh, <laughs> and we have two chickens, okay, so I can, I can inflict this upon myself. But our chickens, we let them out, and when it gets dark, they go back into the coop. You know, and then we shut the door and we don't, we don't, we don't have to coax them. They, they, they just know to do that. They've learned to do that. You know, and, and you could say, well, that's partly instinctual because it's dark and they might be scared. Whatever. They, they still learned where to go. You know, we don't have like pathways or they're not on leashes. They, they go wherever they want. They know where they live. They know, you know, that's where you go. Now, would I, I can trust my chickens to do that. I would not trust a toddler <laughs> like, I'm going to let the toddler out now. Let the toddler go wherever he wants. And when it gets dark, he'll come home. Look, we all know that that is not going to happen. <laughs> okay, so like, is the chicken smarter than the toddler? I mean, well, the, the, the chicken learned the behavior better than the toddler did. So mm-hmm. you, you, you get into all these subjects about intelligence and consciousness and, and whatnot. Uh, I, I'm not bothered by by you know, experiments like that or the, the things we've been talking about here because – that is not the image of God. Okay, the, even though lots of Christians think that, and they would be troubled by certain elements in, in this discussion and others that we'll have down the road. If the, the problem isn't isn't what we're learning about the natural world and about animals, the problem is is you were not taught very well about this point of theology, and you haven't thought carefully about it. So that's the thing you need to work on, not the other. Yeah, I have a quick story. Uh, you know, I agree that all. Pets have personality, and uh, my dog, little dog uh, Chihuahua, before she passed, she never slept in my bed. She always slept with my mom. But the morning that she passed, she crawled into my bed before school. I was in high school, and just laid with me, which was unusual. And I knew it was unusual. I was like, "What's going on?" You know. And of course, I laid there with her, and then sure enough, that day she passed. So, you know, there's definitely a level of conscious there, and. and and, uh, you know, yeah, I, and you know, I think there's some connection there. I, I don't know what it is, but yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. Don't know what it means, but I, I know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we have to dump the image of God. <laughs> no, yes, you know, right. not at all. So wh- whatever that is, maybe we'll find out at some point, but I don't think it's a theologically troubling thing. I think it's just interesting and, you know, Hey, you know, it, it's worth talking about. It's worth reading about because it's just, it's just kind of fascinating you know, what, what that might be, how that might be built into, you know, that part of the creation that we, you know, would tend to sort of be dismissive of, again, if it were not for, you know, research, you know, and, and our own experience, you know, with, with uh, animals and, and other things too. Yeah, and I do appreciate somebody taking the time to actually study this because mm-hmm. it, it, there's a lot of math here and a lot of time and uh, it's tedious and, and so – these experiments, I appreciate people who do try to get to the bottom of these things, all things that we're going to talk about on the show and, and the peer-reviewed work that they end up doing. So it's definitely needed and appreciated. Yeah, when you get into it, you, you know, I, I, 
I don't know about you guys, but I've read some of these articles and thought, man, this is mind numbing. Like how, how could you devote, this must've taken you weeks just to set this thing up and try to anticipate this or that. And then, you know, to, you know, just to, to analyze the data, but there, yeah, there are people who do that and it's great that they do it. I don't want to do it. You know, like you can, you can hand me your conclusions, you know, and, and let me read them, but I don't want to do it. You know, it, it, it's, it's a lot of work. It really is. It's a lot of and work think, to read it too. I think just when it, when it comes to animals, I would just say that, you know, I think that a lot of Christians I have found have a somewhat flippant, um, opinion of animals that they're, you know, not worthy of our thought or discussion. They're just here to be beasts of burden and and what have you. But I think that just as a final comment that I think it's pretty evident in scripture that the Lord does care for the animals. And so therefore we should, we should, um, you have more care and, and respect for the animals. You know, in Fro- Proverbs twelve ten, it says that whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. And I think that just speaks so loudly of, of how God cares for the welfare of animals. And if that is true, then who's to say anything about the types of abilities, perceptions, or connections that he's, he's given them? Because clearly he does care for them. And expects us to. Yeah, I mean, pick up, pick any other area of science. You know, it, the more you drill down, the more you discover you don't know, and and the new things that are there. Why, why should this area be any different? Right. You know, what it's not reasonable to think that. Okay, we've we're, we're tapped here. We're, we're you know we know all we're going to know about you know this, and I I do find myself you know looking at lots of different things and thinking, okay, the, yeah, it's not real bright. But it's a conscious life. This is conscious life, and and that that matters. You know, it's not just this throwaway thing. Yeah, you know, it it is. It, it's still a reflection of of the Creator. You know, more dimly than than other things, but it 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 still nevertheless is that. Yes. And to treat it, you know, essentially like garbage is just yeah. It, and I know I know what you're talking about. You know, I it's yeah, it's kind of offensive to be honest with you. I agree. I agree. Whether it's like the sort of the idea that, you know, hunters should be able to go out and kill for sport and that it's no big deal. And and it's kind of like ingrained into this uh, conservatism that is equated with Christianity that, you know, animals are here for our, you know, whatever, our pleasure, our, you know, to kill them haphazardly. And, and I think that while I, identify as a conservative, I, I have problems with some of that really wild out there stuff that we, you know, that we are, that the animals are just so not worthy of our consideration. Because like I said, in scripture, it clearly says that not only does the Lord care for the welfare of the beast, but he instructs us to care for them, to be merciful and kind and to have regard for their welfare. So I think it's something for people to think about. Yeah, they're they're a resource, but they're not only a resource. You know, yes. there's there's a difference there that yeah, I, I think is easy to forget. Yeah. Which is good that we have laws to protect them. Yes, well. agreed. So I think well, that th- says yeah, yeah, one more thing, one last thought. I just think that says a lot about us as a people that we actually have laws against mm-hmm. harming animals and the mistreatment of them. So I think that speaks volumes to how we perceive animals to actually yeah. have laws to protect them from mm-hmm. us. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> from us. Yeah. From us. Yeah. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for the discussion. We should say something about, uh, the next topic. Now I, I, again, it would be fun to talk about EVP, mm. uh, electronic voice phenomena, which of course is associated with ghosts. Uh, there's actually a, a, a decent amount of material uh, written on this fairly recently, but I'll, I'll pick an article or two about that. So if there are no objections, I, I would think EVP is a good topic. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sounds I'm great. I'm ready to get scared. Now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, what we need is EVP of animals that we can talk about the geo. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> all, all, all we hear was a bark or a, yeah, there we go. <laughs> you know, our TV would be barking at us or something. Yeah. Somewhere yeah. in the archives, somewhere, somebody has found an EVP of a bark or a meow. I guarantee it. We yeah, should you, find it. You would think so. <laughs> yeah, you would think so. Somehow that's not as scary. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a growl. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. yeah, that, a, a, a meow might not be as scary, but yeah. you know, maybe a hiss or a growl, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> or a snort in the case of my pug. So. <laughs> All right. well, hey, thanks, thanks for uh, joining us, Natalina. Oh, thank you so much, guys. This is fun as usual. 